Socially Good Media presents The Socially Good Podcast. I'm John Gilbert, who along with members of the team from the award-winning social marketing agency Eskimo Soup will be shining a light on the latest and the greatest in media communications. Hello and welcome back to the Socially Good Podcast. I'm John Gilbert and my guest today is Viv Blackledge. Now Viv is from an organisation called Corner House. Welcome along Viv. Thank you very much. Now we've been working together for a few years on a very important campaign for us and it's and it's, I mean, it's one element of lots of work that you do around um, trying to do prevention work around grooming and exploitation of young people. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do with the Care Project and and Corner House and what I suppose, what is the social challenge that you're trying to solve? Okay, so um, Corner House, anyone who knows Corner House will know we're quite multifaceted, but the Care Project in particular has existed a bit over 10 years now. Um, So we work around child sexual exploitation um, and I guess the overall kind of Hope is that the young people that we work with will either be prevented from entering into an exploitative situation or be supported to leave an exploitative situation. Okay, if we can, let's go back to the basics on this. So we talk there about sexual exploitation. Can you just explain to anybody who maybe isn't familiar? I'm sure everybody's heard the term, but it does get it kind of gets dumped in with lots of different forms of, of abuse, but it's quite a specific form of abuse. Yeah, definitely. So the papers kind of make it look like certain things and talk about child sexual exploitation. But basically, the way that kind of we would describe it is when a young person's want and wants and needs are met by doing something sexually. So, for example, you know, someone being given presents or drugs or alcohol or all kinds of things, really. Um, and... In return, they have to perform some kind of sexual favour. And they might not be straight away, so we talk a lot about grooming, how young people might be drawn into that kind of situation um, without necessarily seeing it coming. And grooming is another term that we hear a lot, and that will bring up different connotations for people. We hear about online grooming. Yeah. What What is the... I, mean, I guess there'll be no typical process, but what are the kind of things that, that you see with the young people that you and your team support that they've uh, has been like the process they've experienced mm. well there is kind of a kind of structured process that a lot of the resources we use kind of talk about so the four steps of grooming so befriending someone i mean and this can happen in a day this can happen over six months or whatever so befriending someone building a relationship with someone creating a either more romantic or a closer relationship so it could be in the guise of a best friend or a boyfriend of a girlfriend um, and once that kind of trust and relationship's built that's when it can become an abusive relationship when I guess when that abusive person is pretty sure that the young person isn't going to you know tell someone or that they can kind of manipulate them into you know staying around or whatever. So is that an element of control that's been exerted over the young yeah, people? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, and that, so I guess that's the almost the, uh, not, not quite the academic, but that, that's the, the process and we understand it. Yeah. But what's it really like on a human level? Oh, that's a deep question, John. Which, well, normally I would <laughs> so, wait more than two minutes into the podcast to ask a deep question, so yeah. I'll dive straight so, in there. I guess in reality what that looks like, it could be anything from getting... You know, so the more extreme end of the scale, I guess, is getting someone addicted to drugs and alcohol. That's 
not uncommon, but I guess probably more common is that lower level stuff where actually what you're getting from someone is time, affection, um, you know, friendship, love, those things that potentially young people aren't experiencing at home or, you know, they're looking for a romantic partner. I don't know. It could be anything from, you know, all my mates have got boyfriends or girlfriends and, you know, no one's really been interested in me, but, oh, this person started talking to me online and they're my boyfriend now or they're my girlfriend now. Um, So there's that really good video in the Kaylee's Love Story film, which has been around a couple of years now, but I think that absolutely encompasses in five minutes the grooming grooming line and you know what she wanted what she needed was you know someone to be interested in someone to love her and all that kind of stuff and that process took two weeks so yeah and you said that did take two weeks but often it's it's a much more sustained period of time yeah um in the cases that, that you work with and i think there's all kind of tactics that abusers will use but at the heart of it it, it is exploitation in in the sense of exploiting young people's vulnerabilities yeah, whoever you are uh, as a teenager you're you're trying to find your place in the world the things that you've just described then we, we still crave as adults we want we yeah, want attention definitely. we want we want love but when you're going through that period of uncertainty and well i remember what it was like chemicals yeah. in my brain all different factors peer comparisons peer pressure and so on it's such a it's such a complicated time that i think for um, one of the, the, the calls to action with the, the work that we do with, with yourselves on Not In Our Community is about being aware of what the signs are and where you can go to help. But the thing is, the signs are quite difficult to pick up on because a lot of it just seems like teenage Average stuff anyway. stuff, definitely. I think the young people that we work with, so I should have said maybe before, like Care Project stands for Children at Risk of Exploitation. So definitely some of the young people we work with are already in an exploitative situation, but there's that at-risk element, which is probably probably the biggest part. So we might work with young people who've got certain indicators, like say so. There could be stuff around going missing. There could be stuff around drugs and alcohol. There could be internet usage, all that kind of stuff. And ultimately, I guess what we're trying to do is build their resilience and reduce vulnerability as much as you can do like say everyone wants and needs a lot of the same kind of stuff and it's trying to get those needs met in a healthier way i guess than um if you know someone could potentially take advantage of someone's wants and needs do the young people that the care project work with identify that they are being exploited not normally no we've had some who you know, they can identify it as they go on. They can identify sexual assaults um, and they kind of know what certain parts of it are. They wouldn't necessarily use the same language as us, but... Um, what what language do they use then? Because it's, it's I guess you're not going to get this classical, yes, I realise I've been groomed and, and now yeah. I'm being sexually exploited I mean, because so, you've yeah. because of that element of manipulation and control that you've described. But what are, what are some of the terms that you hear? Well, I guess normally what I hear is them kind of trying to, justify what's going on i guess there's probably elements around embarrassment and stuff that might stop people talking about it that kind of um victim blaming that people place on themselves um and yeah they kind of find those ways kind of to justify what's happened um but a lot of them maybe wouldn't see the exploitation element in what's happened it's like oh well i wanted this 
and then you know that's what I had to do to get it and you know Is whatever that, that it's was all the right. price yeah mm. yeah or you know it could it kind of you know when you you try not to see it everywhere and be kind of disillusioned with the world but you could be talking to me in person like oh well yeah this guy comes and picks me up and he gives me cigs and it's brilliant and you're like head in your hands going oh but what about this that like, oh but it's fun I'm like what I don't know, I had a girl the other day telling me, you know, oh, well, he drives his car real fast and it's real fun. And, and I'm like, oh, but what what if you felt scared? Well, I don't feel scared because I like it and it's fun. Um, and I'm kind of thinking, oh, God, and, you know, however many months or whatever is that person going to turn around and say, right, well, you know all those cigs that I bought you? Yeah? Well, this is what you have to do now. Um, so it's the, yeah feel like I've gone off on a bit of a, a ramble there but you kind of see it and worry about it all the time well it must be very difficult not to and mm. it, it's interesting hearing you talking about justification from the perspective of the the victim because that's what abusers do is that they will yeah, they go through the, a, a different process albeit one around justification creation of opportunity and and actually it's got to balance in their mind that maybe they they've earned what they're getting or that it's okay because of something that happened to them in the past yeah definitely those excuses yeah so um we do quite an interesting project called uh tender which is drama based um project around domestic abuse and one of the big kind of subjects we try to cover in that is the victim blaming but also perpetrator excusing kind of within that so that oh well it's happened to me or you know i get angry and you know all that kind of stuff and i did piece of training with a brilliant woman called Zoe Lodrick who is a I don't know a trauma specialist you're nodding like have you, have you heard of Zoe you've told me about it before oh did I tell you already <laughs> she's brilliant she's really good um and oh her training is incredible because she goes into the character of the uh the abuser whether it's exploitation or whatever and I'm not even going to pretend to be as good at her but, but she she does this kind of these kind of characters where she's explaining oh well they were asking for it and you know it's not my fault because of this that and the other um and then like right at the end she'll be like oh and that was someone who was abusing an 11 year old girl or something and you think oh my god like but it's from it's real life scenarios she's brilliant at you know (laughs) if you get to go on her training highly recommend it i mean it would be life was so much easier if goodies were goodies and baddies look like baddies and, and so but it's just yeah. it's just not like that and I think yeah. the there's a personal justification and also society will justify yeah. things I if I may if we could explore something that you mentioned earlier on around victim blaming and I think certainly when it comes to sexual exploitation we, we saw when it grew to its biggest prominence in the media say mm. five six years ago there was a lot of that happening. Do you think, is that still the case or have we made any progress? Definitely, yeah. So, um, yeah, a lot of the young people are kind of like, well, you know, they're going to meet them and they're going to these places which they know are risky. So, you know, there are certain parks which kind of are red flags in the area and they're like, well, why do they keep going there if they know that this is going to happen? Because their wants and their needs are being met by doing that. So, you know, it's some of the young people work with maybe haven't got great home lives or there's a reason why they're out and about and doing something else and actually you know saying about wanting to kind of find love and whatever that might take the form of friendships and when you're a teenager fitting in and doing what your friends are doing 
probably feels more important than being safe. Um, and then coming back to Zoe Lodrick, I might do this a few times. When I saw her, she was talking about kind of the difference for young people between um, something being exciting and something being scary. And actually on a kind of an emotional spectrum, they're kind of at the same kind of level, but they're a slightly different feeling because of puberty and all those hormones and stuff they can't identify the difference between them so they might feel scared by something but they perceive it as exciting and they they can't kind of rationalize and see the consequences because of the way their brain's developing in the same way you know five ten years on even you can look back and go oh my god what was i doing what was i thinking we've all put ourselves in those risky positions thinking that we know best you know, the older you get, the more you turn into your mum and think, oh, she was right. <laughs> but, but, yeah, you just have to keep reinforcing that message, I think, and eventually it kind of kind of sinks in. So, like, I have had older young people who would absolutely use the word exploitation because they understand it now and it's been so kind of drip-fed in over however many years' work. But, you know, the younger ones, they just think that they're, they're having a laugh and they're out with the mates and it's it's fun mm. so that's a hard thing to to tackle really but just have to keep <laughs> keep going back be stubborn um another zoe one if i if i may she talks about um everyone having an internal reservoir of kind of resilience and people everyone's got different levels and everything will affect it and if your reservoir is really run low and you've been having to use your resilience you know, to process what's going on at home and friendships in school and all that kind of stuff. Maybe someone's experienced abuse in the past. If if you've got, if you've run out of water or you're running low, you'll go for any water, whether it is, so she says, you know, if someone offers you a bottle and it's full of fag ends and it's black and got all this gross stuff in it, you might just see the water and you don't care that it comes with all of that stuff because you're getting what you need from it. Whereas someone who's maybe got a higher kind of reservoir, a full reservoir, is going to say, well, actually, I don't need that water. It can be a bit more kind of pick and choose where where I'm going to get my water from. And she always talks about just have to keep being the clean Evian. You have to be the We always say it to each other in the office now, be the Evian. Because sometimes you do feel like, you know, what am I doing? Am I getting anywhere with this person? And, yeah, you just have to keep going back and going back and going back and being, yeah be the evian that's the uh, <laughs> that's the quote <laughs> so what is the makeup you, you've referred that to the team so mm. tell us a bit about corner house and the, the care project and, and what do you actually do yeah so there's three of us on the care project at the moment um it's kind of grown over the years um it started with one and now we're at three um so myself and jenna are share a part well we're both part-time sharing the same funding um and connie came to us as a social work student um and stayed on through maternity leave and she was basically just she's just stayed (laughs) (laughs) so we think come you know the demand grows and the more that you can fill it the more people who come to you so it'd be really hard i think to to step back and have less than three of us Okay, so you, as part of the team, are working directly with... Do you call them victims? Do you call them survivors? Do you... Clients? What's the terminology? Young people? Yeah, the young people, really. Um, Because it's very difficult not to label somebody. Yeah, I think... I don't know, because it's an ongoing thing. It's hard to say 
survivors obviously people are going to be victims of certain offenses so sexual offenses predominantly i guess um but i don't really like i definitely wouldn't use that language with them um i well, it's got a potential self-fulfilling prophecy element to it yeah. as well hasn't it i always so. try and let young people lead with that so i would never be working with someone and saying you've been raped that's what's happened we'll talk about consent and um you know healthy relationships and all that kind of stuff and then when they understand consent and that you know rape doesn't necessarily have to be someone being pinned down and you know dark alley all that kind of stereotypical stuff so actually i didn't want it to happen and they did it anyway they might label it themselves and like some people really want to have those conversations and they want to understand what a sexual assault is and what specifically rape is like legally and all that kind of stuff and i do try and use the right language with them but we always try and let the young people kind of lead that rather than telling them this -hmm. is what i think has happened if that makes sense yeah of course mm. I mean I took us on a deviation there but, but my, my question I suppose is about uh, the work that you do with them how does that work and at which point in their journey do they begin working with the care project all different to be fair so sometimes um, I don't know someone in a school will say I'm a bit worried about this young person their internet usage have been flagged up or you know there's been an image gone round and you know I'm a bit worried about them um, and we'll be asked to do some kind of basic education work which might you know sometimes we go in it takes a couple of weeks to we do a bit of early intervention work I'd love to only be doing early intervention work but unfortunately <laughs> you know there's that other stuff because we'd love to be able to prevent it all um, so sometimes it's really simple education early intervention Sometimes there's a bit more going on, so we might be involved when social care become involved and there could be, um, you know, they're going missing or they're going to kind of highlighted areas or whatever. So there'll be some kind of trigger and we're thinking, well, they're definitely at risk. They're vulnerable because of X, Y and Z. Um, and sometimes in person suddenly kind of like almost like appears on the scene and they'll be part of the MACE process, which is the kind of the partnership meetings that we hold around exploitation with social care, the police, education, um, lots of other people. And that's sit in, on intelligence that. sharing, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So around, is that around, uh, I'm going to use the phrase, but is that around victims and is that around perpetrators as well? Mm. Yeah, a bit of both. So um, at those meetings, we will talk, we'll have an agenda where we talk about specific young people and what can be added to their plan. So they'll already have social care involved. A lot might be on um, certain plans, whether it's children in need or child protection plans or whatever. And it's about trying to add to that. So some young people, they're really high risk and they're probably quite vulnerable and they might be there as a mention, but actually they've got loads of work going on and it's just kind of, well, we need to like let it work really. And there might not be much more that you can add. Um, whereas some, it's actually not until you get all those people sat around the room and go, oh, well, actually I work with someone who's talked about this and you start putting that kind of jigsaw puzzle together and figuring out a bit more about what's going on and um, so sometimes like a young person will kind of pop up on the scene on that and say right well no one's doing any intervention work so they're putting referral to corner house or to refresh a local drugs agency or you know whatever and try and build a bit more on that okay i mean you mentioned um, a few moments ago that you would I mean, you'd like to be doing the early intervention and prevention work yeah. on, on that. And I think therein lies one of the, the, the challenging points because um, so the work that we do 
with not in our community that you've supported us on mm. that is very much about prevention and it's a widespread message to anybody that it, if you are a young person um anybody could be at risk okay but also we recognize some people are at greater risk in fact you've used the phrase high risk yeah so what what makes somebody high risk and what are the kind of uh, factors that make one young person more vulnerable than another oh loads of stuff every child is so different high risk for one young person is completely different to high risk for another young person so i think i've mentioned a few times it could be stuff around substance misuse so you know if someone's talking about getting drunk or getting high and they don't know what's going on that's obviously really high risk it could be that they're going missing and we just simply don't know where they are um, and there could be anything going on and they're not talking to us for whatever reason i um, guess sorry to jump no, in but, there but i guess from like an outsider who may be who uses social media will see on twitter or on facebook young person has gone missing and you see yeah. it on facebook and you see the comments and they're quite judgmental at times mm. and it's just like why why doesn't her mother know where she is and this yeah. is terrible, terrible and, and all of this and i guess um, I mean, people. Are, everybody sees life through their own lens. Yeah. Some people are far too quick to to, to jump to a judgment there, but I often wonder what's the story behind those things. Yeah. And, and and people really pick up on it when they see the same young person. Yeah. And I tell you what, Viv, from what I perceive, this coming back to the point we discussed earlier about victim blaming, that comes up again. It's just like, well, if they're going to go missing, what do they think is going to happen? And the you feel like setting, screaming at it and going, yeah. no, there's a lot more to it than this. Yeah. I think as a society we instantly will blame the weaker person. I, I, you know, bunny ear kind of thing, the, the weaker For thing. For the benefits but... of the podcast listener, there were bunny ears. Yeah. <laughs> there were bunny ears, weaker. Um, but yeah, I, we by default blame them. And it's like, well, you know, no one asks for that to happen. You know, I'm sure that that child who's been missing every week for, you know, the last six months would like to be able to go home and, you know, stay with their mum if they've got a mum. You know, they might have gone missing from care. They might be missing because home is an awful place to be. They could be missing because someone's manipulating them into leaving or, um, you know, there might be some kind of county lines or criminal exploitation thing going on. Um I was having a conversation with someone about this yesterday, actually. You know, like, for some young people, they've got no control over anything going on in their lives. And maybe the thing that they can control is whether they go home or not that night, whether they put themselves back in that situation. Um, and, yeah, it's really difficult. Like, some people, they'll go missing from school. They'll go missing from home. They might go missing... They might be reported missing because they've not been home at a curfew. Um, some young people... so. Maybe if someone said, right, we need to be in at 10, five minutes past 10, if they're not back in, you know, automatically call the police rather than giving it 20 minutes to let the bus come in. So 20 minutes can seem like quite a lot, like anything could happen in 20 minutes, couldn't it? And maybe the sooner you know about it, the better. But there could also be, you know, a reasonable explanation. And you don't, you're not going to find that out by looking at, you know, the police's Facebook posts, they're not going to tell you, oh, well, yeah, we just we just didn't know where they were for a bit. And, you know, this is everything that's going on for them. So, you know, we want to keep an eye out and be sensitive to that, please. Don't just, you know, it always baffles me when people are like, well, I've seen that they've been missing for six times. Someone needs to do something about this. And you think someone is trying to do something about that. Absolutely. A lot of people will be. It's just more complicated than people realise. 
like I say, people have their own lens and just because they've not experienced that, you know, they can't imagine it. Because I think even working with the young people that I do, I, I can't imagine what it's like exactly going through some of the stuff that they go through, you know. And I don't I don't particularly want to because some of it's really horrific. Um, and that's, yeah, that really winds us up, I think, and will do a lot of professionals when they see those kinds of comments because everyone just wants to do their best for those young people, don't they? And you, you can't control it. <laughs> it's really difficult. Mm. And I guess so much of the focus that the general public see is around the victims. Um, and this is where we we have support plans in place, we have the work that Corner House do in schools, we have the work that Not In Our Community does around educating young people. Uh, but all, again, all of this is about the victim side of yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I keep coming back to this point for deliberately because it, it's something that we've been talking about a lot recently. So we're five years into a campaign now and we the, the main call to action is about um, giving young people, empowering young people to look out for their friends. Right? Yeah. So if they see any of the warning signs and they know where they can get help and the whole ethos of not in our community is kind of like a combined strength of people young people, adults, services, the police, whoever, schools, the key kind of people together to say, right, we, we have to solve this together. We can't just leave it up to social services or the yeah. police. It's got to be a partnership approach. And young people have a really important part to play in that, which is fine. However, as much as we can go upstream around looking at some of the vulnerabilities, so we do some work around what influence could domestic abuse within the home, does that um, lead to susceptibility around other forms of exploitation? it feels sometimes like we're doing all of this work which is just patching things up when actually the perpetrators are the problem, aren't they? I mean, yeah. even when these things blow up in the media, it's police didn't do this or uh, children's services didn't do that. And, and okay, mm-hmm. there have been some pretty... I'm not defending things across the board. There's been some yeah. pretty horrific behaviour on that side over the years. Um, but ultimately, the perpetrators surely are the problem. They've made the choice to do it, haven't they? I think generally, unless someone's got... I don't know, some kind of sociopathic disorder <laughs> or something along those lines. People generally know right from wrong. And like we were saying before, people find ways to justify their behaviour. So, oh, well, they went to the party and they got drunk and they knew that I was going to be there or whatever. I don't know. I don't know how they justify it. But people know right from wrong. And I think, you know, it's, a, it's an active choice that someone has made to abuse that child, whether it's exploitation or... Or anything else really um how you challenge it i don't know because if some you know i kind of think well if someone knows if someone knows it's wrong and they're still choosing to do it like how do you help that person i don't know <laughs> mm. well <laughs> i mean it maybe is this difficult is, but yeah this is a discussion we've, we've had on previous issues with like the, uh, the prison service and probation mm. and so on around i mean there's a there's a plan for dangerous individuals there yeah. but then there's also this there's sometimes a bit of a blurry line which I'd like to ask you about and it's around things um, two, well two things really one is around peer grooming and we hear about so young people who have been sexually exploited um, who are a perceived risk to other young people yeah. for, and if I may ask you to give us a little explanation of peer grooming and, and certain of the things that you see but also there's this magical thing that happens on when somebody is 17 and 360 odd days, then they flip over to becoming an adult. And somebody yeah. who has certain protections and would be a victim suddenly can find themselves a perpetrator of offences as well. Yeah. So there's a really critical period of time, I guess, where you've got to make sure that 
there's a, some intensive support to make sure that that, that young person has this op- well opportunity. I don't want to say choice, but an opportunity mm. to to uh, to be removed or remove themselves from some of these situations. Is that something that you deal with as part of the care project? Yeah. So in terms of peer on peer grooming, it's quite an interesting one. So sometimes it could be um, someone exploiting someone their age to do something sexual. Sometimes it could be to get them to come along with them to I don't know go go to the park with them or something and you know when we think about exploitation in terms of kind of the party scene it might be about well actually the more people that I get there the less attention I'm going to get so it might be kind of spreading around the motivation it can often be about kind of self-protection and yeah it's quite an interesting one it's different all the time I think it's hard to know what is young people wanting their mates to be with them and experience what they perceive to be the fun side of it and going oh come to this party or come to the park it might be that the young person themselves isn't aware yeah of their motivation when you're in a traumatic situation you've mentioned um rational thinking um, yeah. earlier but the thing is young person or adult we don't often make well we make a lot of irrational decisions let's be honest I mean, yeah, but in terms of our, our own behavior so I guess I asked the question about peer on peer on grooming. Uh, maybe it's the wrong question or a hard question to be asking, because um, it it's something that there is such a blurry line around this, and I don't. I ask it in a little bit of a way around victim blaming because if somebody's been involved in that, um, we can't blame them if they've, they've been groomed to to groom somebody else to the group yeah. or at that point of desperation. I guess my attitude of it is probably a lot more sympathetic than than many and I just wondered if um if, if you've had any indications around the thought process of of young people in those kind of situations um I can't think like kind of specifically but I think yeah there, there is probably elements of kind of self-protection so you know this situation's going on and you know my want and need is for that not to happen anymore or for it not to be as bad when it happens. So actually, if I take another girl along with me, for example, then, you know, these guys' attention might be spread across a couple of us, or, you know, they'll do that, and I can just kind of, I don't know, chill out in the chill out in the corner. <laughs> I'm sure that's not what they're thinking. But do you know what I mean? Like, it, the, the pressure isn't going to be on them as much. Um, and I think maybe that's kind of a bit of a stereotypical kind of sexual exploitation scenario, going to parties. Um, I think, yeah, it does happen. Like, um, I had, you know, a girl that I'd worked with had a specific scenario. Had been, her and her mates had been given some drugs. I think it was cannabis or something. And, you know, it was another young man, their kind of age, had said, well, you know, someone needs to give me a blowjob for that. And this group of friends have gone, well, they're going to do it. They're the oldest, so they should do it. Obviously, not because she wanted to do it, but when all your mates have stood there saying, you're going to do it, how do you back down from that? How do you, you know, kind of lose lose face or whatever? And, you know, the rational adult goes, well, those are rubbish mates. You don't need to be around people who are going to treat you like that, use you like that. Arguably, that's exploitation on a couple of levels, isn't it? Well, maybe that young person went, you know, got taken with that group because they knew that they'd be able to ask her to do that for him because, you know, they knew that he was going to ask. And, you know, it's just so multifaceted, isn't it? All the different aspects of it. And then potentially there's someone older than, you know, that particular young man who's 
getting him to give you know give stuff away so that group of girls knows that they can get cannabis from this person and kind of build a bit of relationship and going to a party at their mate's house or you know whatever and it just kind of layers up and layers up and layers up it is complicated but on another level it's really simple so as much as we call them young people they're children yeah. Right, and I, and I agree with you. I've referred to them as young people rather than children, but in the eyes of the law, and actually in terms of the development, they are children. So, yeah. so the, the good mate, bad mate, whatever, whatever that is, it's 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 very simple. It's wrong. It's child sexual exploitation, and that the focus therefore um, needs to be on the young people in terms of protection, but the perpetrators. That's where we need to make sure that the prosecutions are made and the actual. Yeah reasonable sentences um, are available. Which leads me into another question, really. Um, So, um, a young person who has had a major betrayal of their trust, but let's say by an adult, comes to be supported by the care project or or an equivalent, um, and then starts sharing information. Now, this information becomes intelligence to be shared Mm -hmm. at Mace, and ultimately um, is valuable to the police if they're pursuing a, a prosecution. So when you're asking them about this, well, maybe I'm presuming there, how, how do you relate to young people that allows them to share what they want to share in their way? I guess we kind of lay our start right at the beginning. Um, you know, for legal reasons, we have to do all the GDPR and all that kind of stuff. And within that, we talk about information sharing. And just to really, really clear, if you share anything with us that we're worried about, I'm going to have to pass that on. And, you know, they will they'll know what is shared or yeah so we will tell them what is shared or that we're going to share it and say well that worries me so you know I need to share that and generally I think I'm kind of stealing this from my colleague Jenna you know if a young person's telling you something it's probably because they want you to do something about it so they might make a load of fuss about the fact that you've told someone but actually they've released you know that bit of information intentionally and equally we work with young people who will not tell us anything and you know they they know that you're going to share anything so they actively choose not to maybe they've been in the system you know whether it's social services or care or whatever they've they've been around long enough to understand how it works and they make an active choice not to tell you I think if someone is telling you something it's generally because they want you to do something about it or you know they'll they'll tell you loads of stuff go oh but you're not going to tell anyone or can I ask you to tell you a secret and you say like well, no, you can't because I'm going to have to share what whatever it is if if it's something that worries me. And sometimes they'll kind of carry on anyway. And they kind of double back. And I don't know if that's a bit of a, oh, well, I'm telling you this, but actually, you know, I'm going to make out like I don't want, you know, almost like kind of convince themselves that it isn't because they want you to do something about it because that's really hard and that's really scary. So if, you know... If, if you do share it, well, it's not my fault because I didn't want to do it, but they always know. Does that make sense? They always know that we're going to have to share that. Most of the young people we work with have got social care involved and probably other services as well. So, you know, they they know how it works generally. Well, but I guess um, in a lot of cases, they're going to be very conflicted. And this is yeah. the power of the groomer and the abuser who maybe um, taking a young person to a point that they're having to do sexual acts that they don't want to do. Yeah. But yet, whether that's um, they feel a, an obligation, whether they feel fear, 
maybe even love uh, yeah. to, to or, or certainly um, some, some kind of Something affiliation to that. Love, yeah. yeah um, so I guess in it, they've, they must be so conflicted in, in their minds. Um, is there anything we can do to break those bonds that they may have with an abuser? That's probably the hardest thing, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that really. Like I think being modelling a positive relationship can help. It can take a long time. So there's a guy I work with who, you know, it's gone from, you know, she would tell us that stuff was going on, but she never gives any information that, like that could identify anyone so no names no real locations anything like that gradually bits started coming um you know we keep going back we keep going back and we see him every week and talk about exploitation abuse very very generally no names or anything like that keep on talking keep on talking keep on talking um eventually names start coming out and disclosures start being made um and yeah and to a point where you know police were involved and you're able to you know try and get the bad guys but even then there's still the 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 most common argument that the biggest kind of challenge is you know they get taken into custody and say oh well it was consensual and it's really hard to prove that it isn't when someone's being groomed it is going to look like they, they potentially look like they wanted to go and that they wanted to meet them because they are still having a need and a want met in some way so maybe in some ways they did want to be there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they wanted that activity to happen or whatever. That's out of their control or feels out of their control or they aren't able to say, you know, if they've not literally said no, then for the young person that could be quite hard to reconcile with themselves. I've heard that so many times. Well, I didn't say no. It's like, well, did you say yes though? Did, did they even ask? That's kind of the... <laughs> The, the difficult thing, I think, when you're talking around kind of sexual abuse, really. So, so the care project operates in Hull. Yeah. Um, what does the? I don't. I didn't want to say caseload, but what what's, what, <laughs> what what does it look like in in Hull? What are the ages of victims of perpetrators? Um, are there any kind of particular trends? And I guess for anybody listening to this, who maybe this could be their first real encounter of a in-depth discussion around child sexual exploitation yeah. who may be thinking i'm not letting my kids go anywhere i'm not letting them on my hands or what what level of um abuse are we talking about? i don't know if that's a crass question but i yeah. guess it's just what, what does it look like because we hear a lot about it yeah but i don't know if any, generally people have an idea of the scale and what's really going on because the stuff that's been in the mainstream mo- uh, media has been about organized gangs in, in west yorkshire and other parts of the country yeah. as well but is that what we see in hull um that's difficult to say so there's always all my questions have been difficult today. (laughs) i think it's really difficult so the stereotypical you know cse case that makes it in the media is gangs of men often asian for lack of a better term well we hear the phrase asian uh, muslim grooming gang and things i'm not advocating that but that's what you see online i think it's probably fair to say there's that kind of stuff going on everywhere but the vast majority of the young people working with are not being groomed by, you know, a gang of Asian men. They're, we've had, I'll try and think recently, we've had everything from um, young women who are being exploited by um, older girlfriends. So that's there been a couple of cases in recent years 
whether it's that kind of thing and that's really difficult because you know getting people's heads around the fact that women can be abusive and to other women or girls in this case that's a really hard stereotype to to kind of break and there's definitely stuff around that kind of peer-on-peer exploitation so young people exploiting young people that there is you know potentially elements of um gang kind of affiliation although i use that term kind of more loosely in Hull I guess it's kind of more of a network maybe more than a gang um, there were kind of ongoing investigations about things like that at at the moment which I presumably can't say a vast amount about but you know I think probably the more people are involved in something potentially the easier it is at some point someone's going to um, make a disclosure about it or someone's going to slip up somewhere you know and kind of so maybe I don't know, you probably have to ask, you know, our, our friendly detective. But yeah. um, but you're like, he's not going to be able to do this podcast tell us everything. <laughs> no, we, uh... but no, I just mean like in terms of whether it's easier to um, kind of find out stuff about a gang because it isn't just one person grooming one other person. It can absolutely be. So I think in the past we've talked about the boyfriend model. So, you know, one person grooming one other person. Unless, so that's, that's typically an older male, younger female. He yeah, will pick pro- up on what hair vul- yeah. vulnerabilities, yeah. which quite often is attention and kind of feeling special. And then yeah. at that point, they're kind of almost under a spell. Yeah. Um, and then um, yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the, in the love the as far as their the, concept, I would yeah. say that's probably a lot more common. That it's, but it's not as easy to identify. It might be like, oh well, it's a bit weird that that sixteen-year-old is kind of going out with that. You know. I don't know, 35-year-old man, but actually it's not illegal. They're in a relationship. If she's choosing to do that, then that's, you know, her choice kind of thing. Um, And we have worked with cases like that. And again, you try and, you know, drip in the healthy relationship, consent, all that kind of stuff. Um, But, yeah, I I would imagine there's probably a lot more of that kind of stuff happening than you know, than we'll ever know about. And that's why it kind of, I think, probably is disproportionately represented in the media as being these big gangs that make the front page. Um, well, it does exist. Yeah. It does exist. Course, but yeah. as you say, that that actually, if we focus just on that as the problem, it might make us, I don't mean yeah. you, but I just mean us as a society, blind to some of the other risks. That, Absolutely. That, the minute that, you label anything, then yeah. that's all you see, isn't it? And... We all, the thing with labels is that, you know, they're not very good. <laughs> they're like, everything is really broader than were, just one thing. I thought you were going with you some kind was, of proverb there. I was going to say ideas. something profound, but yeah, I couldn't <laughs> find it. But no, like, you, you can't really label anything. Like, yeah. stereotypes are exactly that, aren't they? They're a stereotype based on, I don't know, whatever has been in the paper or, you know, some kind of old cartoon from the 50s or you know that's just kind of snowballed and that's what people think you know a certain group of people are like or but from a communications perspective actually stereotypes can be very useful Mm. because that's that's why we create i think the word stereotype has got negative connotations to it oh you stereotype you're making certain assumptions about somebody or a group yeah um but the reason that that's happened is because it's there's usually some element of truth to that that maybe is transposed onto other issues, but it helps yeah. us understand things, helps us process things. Yeah. So like yeah, the way that you've supported extent, us on yeah. with Not In Our Community is very storytelling-led because yeah. that's how young people tell us they, they want to learn. That's how they remember things. So we can't not 
use stereotypes because that's the only yeah. way that you, that you can do that sometimes. But even then, when you look at all the scenarios that you've created films for... Well, we've got for, 60, 60 exactly, stories. Exactly, they're all so, different, yeah. aren't they? Like, Actually, there's over 100, but okay. <laughs> right. we've, curated, we've curated the best 60 recently. So, yeah. yeah, so if you look at all of them, every single story is different. There'll be similar factors, so there might be stuff around drugs, alcohol, meeting strangers, you know, that kind of stuff. But every scenario is different. Every victim is different. Every perpetrator is different, you know. Well, say to that, sometimes, you know, there are perpetrators who do keep cropping up and sometimes that risk factor we're talking about could be in association with someone who we know to be risky, but actually no one can prove anything. So it's really hard because, you know, someone's still out and about, but... um, yeah, every, everything's different. And yeah, young people in a lot of ways are similar in terms, I guess, of their development. They don't see a lot of consequences to their actions. Like, that's like a biological thing, not just, a, you know, parents getting frustrated that you're not seeing the consequences. They literally don't process, you know, information in the same way that we do. Just go, right, well, if I do this, then that's what's going to happen. That kind of logic isn't really there it's still it's being shuffled about and regrowing probably not the right term but Mm -hmm. you know it's being reformulated how they think so they literally don't see the consequences coming um you know whether it's a short term or a long term thing so um you know so that's true of all young people but then you know some young people can be more kind of motivated and and think so like you know well they're not working hard at school you know maybe they're going to miss the GCSEs and they're thinking oh it don't matter don't matter because I'm having fun and I'm doing this obviously there are other young people who are right well I want to be a doctor and to do that you know they can work backwards and they know they've got to do this that and the other but arguably they're potentially <laughs> more exceptions um, than the rule which obviously you know, then breaks our stereotype of lazy teenagers. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. I think sometimes you have to wonder whether young people have any chance of being equipped to understand the consequences of something like grooming and sexual exploitation. Yeah. And I've maybe gone a little darker here, but I mean, to put this into perspective for anybody listening, this is more than just about committing a sexual act. Yeah. So the survivors that I've worked with who are incredibly brave, who want to share their story with the hopes that it can prevent this from happening to somebody else. But when you listen to their account, the the damage they talk about is, is as you would imagine, very psychological. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the, uh, maybe this, I'm playing to a stereotype here, but a lot of the traits is really just around how it's absolutely destroyed their confidence in themselves. It's It's the degradation. It's... Yeah. From an abuser perspective, it's not just about having sex. It's about control and it's about making somebody feel worthless and for whatever twisted yeah. reason Absolutely, that makes them yeah. feel more, more in control. So, yeah. The more it, you wear someone down, the easier they are to control, aren't they? But yeah, just, just, just to say that this is... It's horrific. It's, mm. it's, the, the sexual acts is one thing, but there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, I, one thing that stays with me... Um, and we, we actually made a short film about this Tory's story. Uh, in fact, I'm, you know, I'm not even going to go into the details. If you want to watch Tory's story, do so and watch it with a bit of a proviso. But this was this was not about sex. This was about control of, of, mm. of the highest level of this this perpetrator and his friends. It's it's, it's really b- bad stuff around that. So I think it's like it's not just. I'm not not to say that sexual obviously doing sexual acts is a very serious issue, but it's much deeper than that. 
Yeah, and that experience has a psychological impact as well as all the stuff that it has taken to get that young person to a point where they can be exploited. So, you know, the knocking the confidence, making them depend on them, um, you know, all that that kind of side of stuff is is damaging absolutely. Um, and you know, rebuilding that young person is really difficult. Um, and yeah, by <laughs> by no means, you know, something I claim to be an expert in, but it's that kind of Evian thing that I was talking about before. You know, you just have to keep going and you know, eventually, you know, that young person will say, oh, I've been to college all week this week, or, you know, recently, um, oh, I've started ice skating again. Or, you know, what whatever it is, you know, that little bit of them will come back and you know that's you know a full team of people i think that makes that possible and that that young person predominantly is the person making it possible but that you know a bit of hope and you know yes it is awful and you're probably always going to remember it and maybe feel awful when you think about it but you know as you think about it it's going to get less and finding the right help can can do that and i think we can help to a certain point you know counseling and stuff can pick up you know, where, where we kind of run out of our, our kind of expertise. Everyone's got a part to play and it's knowing when you can help and when someone else is better placed to do that as well. Um, or sometimes sometimes even a young person might not be ready for us yet. Um, so sometimes stuff can be really complicated around mental health and things like that. And, you know, going in isn't going to add anything yet. So actually, you know, they need a bit of support here before you know you can come in there and you know kind of help yeah <laughs> and as you say it's, it's a big psychological process which leads into my question that i ask most of the guests on the socially good podcast mm. what drives you and how do you manage working on it on an ongoing basis on such a hard-hitting subject yeah i think that's difficult some days i think oh god how <laughs> this is so hard um but um, my drive, I think, I, I mean, I've worked with Cornhouse since I was 18, 19, started volunteering. And it's always just been about helping people. And as I've got older, I think that understanding of what that means has maybe changed a bit or how I want to do that has changed a bit. But generally, it's just the thought that, you know, eventually might have a positive impact. So <laughs> uh, I'm usually kind of a bit of a quick win kind of a person and I like I like quite I, mean, I think most people probably like quite an instant you know kind of reward I guess from whatever it is so I'd spent a lot of time doing um, like sex and relationship education in schools and you know you plan your session you go and deliver an hour you know get some good feedback hopefully and then you're off and you're done so when I kind of transferred into the care project that's been a lot harder and there's like so one young person. So I started with Care Projects like May, June 2018. Um, and there's one young person that I picked up from my colleague who was going on maternity leave. Um, so I, I picked up the case from her. Um, and I've worked with this girl ever since. And we're just getting to a point where actually she doesn't need me anymore. And that is the, the best thing because, you know, you only ever work with people in the hope that you're going to make a positive change. And that's you know, they don't need you anymore. And while within that, you know, best part of two years, I have absolutely wanted to smack my head against brick wall some days and gone, it's just not going in. How, 
what can I do? I can't do anything else, you know. And being kept awake at night thinking about, you know, God, what is going on for that young person today? You know, eventually, <laughs> just about seeing a long-term win, I think, hopefully, um, without, you know, without jinxing anything. So I think that's the motivation that, you know, you do get rewarded from it even if it's just that warm kind of feeling, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, and how how I manage it, I guess, is just, um, well, I heard you talking to Kaylee from Tiger's Trust. I think there is a certain amount, I agreed with her, she said, like, there's a certain amount you kind of get used to it and your resilience kind of builds and, you know, you don't process the horrific things that you hear on the same level as you did when you were new to the role. But... We've got a great team at Corner House that always helps. There's always someone to talk to, you know. You can, you know, it might be you finish work at six o'clock after a full day doing, you know, supporting a person doing a DVD with the police or something where like you've heard it all, and you know you just need to, <laughs> to have a vent. There's always someone that you can do that with, um, and yeah, just being there for each other really and saying you know it's all right if you feel a bit weird about that or you know if that's hard that's okay just giving yourself a bit of an easy time for it really well that's really reassuring to hear Viv and I've had the pleasure of working with you for the past couple of years and we've worked with Corner House for years prior to that as well and I know because I can see it that um, as much as we want those quick wins it's a long-term change that you're making and it is making a big difference with the young people that you support in the moment but also from a prevention perspective you'll be preventing cases of Child sexual exploitation. Those are the those are the outcomes you'll never see. Mm. It's very it's very difficult Stuff you to can't measure. <laughs> you, yeah, how do you measure prevention? But I've, I'm absolutely certain that, um, that that what you're doing and the way that Corner House do that in a true partnership approach as as, as well. I think it wouldn't work without it and the respect that you've got from local authority and the, and, the, and the police in order to make that work. Long may that continue. Thank you. So, Viv, if anybody has been affected by any of the issues today or if they want to learn more about Corner House or connect with yourself, what what, what can they do? Um, so probably the easiest place to find all of our information is on our website. I feel very cheesy saying that. But um, you can find us on most social media or the internet at um, We Are Corner House. Um, and I wasn't quite quick enough off the mark to get all the handles for everything the same. But... Yeah, if you search Corner House, Corner House Yorkshire, something along those lines, you'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, as well as our website. Give us a call or messages. It's usually me or my colleague Luke on the other end of Facebook or Instagram. So, you know, there is there is someone real <laughs> on the other end. Well, Viv, thank you very much for your time today and for all the work that you're doing to support our young people. No problem. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Socially Good podcast. Yeah.